Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at this whole impeachment kerfuffle I've been hearing about. Before we get started, though, a quick note on the country of Ukraine. I'm not an expert on Ukraine. This isn't exactly the sort of thing that I would expect to be chiming in on, but uh, it turns out I seem to know something that a lot of people either don't know, or if they know it, they don't take action on it. So as you're going to hear in today's show, because it was unavoidable for me, and what you would hear if you tuned into pretty much literally any other media outlet talking about impeachment in the last couple of weeks, is the complete interchangeability of the phrase, the Ukraine, with simply Ukraine, or the country of Ukraine. And you may think to yourself, uh, that's a little confusing. I don't know why, uh, why of all the countries in the world is Ukraine sometimes referred to with a V in front of it. It like pretty much never happens anywhere else. What's up with that? And who's right? Well, I'm here to tell you who's right and why. No one should be using the term the Ukraine. This is a hangover from the Soviet era before Ukraine was a country. And so it was referred to when it was just a territory or, you know, a, a protectorate or a whatever portion of the Soviet Union. It was referred to as the Ukraine to sort of describe the area, but to not give it its own sovereignty. It didn't have its own name. It had its own descriptor. It's like in the U.S. we have the North or the South or the West or the East, and those are like regions, but they're not defined. They're not legally autonomous in any way. But to make a strained analogy, imagine the Civil War went differently and the South succeeded in seceding. And then for whatever reason, they decided to call themselves South, as in the country of South. It'd be a sort of silly name, but maybe that's what they would have done. And uh, if that had been the case, then you should call them South, just like you call us America, or you call Russia, Russia, or England, England. But if you went around calling it the South... Well, then you're sort of still just referring to it as the territory area that it is, sort of describing it rather than naming it. And that's the difference between the Ukraine and Ukraine. So from everything I've read and come to understand, Ukrainians very much prefer you not say the Ukraine because it harkens back to, you know, an archaic descriptor from the Soviet era, and they are very proud to no longer be part of the Soviet Union. They are proud to be their own country, just as everyone is proud to be their own country and wants to be referred to thusly. And so, you know, I've been frustrated because all these journalists seem to not get it right, and they either don't know this fact or they know it, but because they grew up in the Cold War era, it's just a verbal tick. And like, I'm just barely old enough to have acquired that tick myself. Like, I don't know why at 10 years old I was, I was like hearing reference to the Ukraine, but like, I guess I was the, you know, the news sort of seeped in. So like, that's how I had referred to it until, and this is why I'm frustrated that other people don't know this because I was corrected 
the last time Ukraine was in the news, when Russia annexed Crimea. It was a huge story, paid attention to worldwide, and it was in that mix that I got the clarification, oh, I get it now. It's not the Ukraine. It's Ukraine. So this is just one of those rare instances that I happen to have this little piece of information that it seems like should be widespread, but clearly isn't, because a lot of people on a lot of podcasts, television channels, etc., continue to use the phrase, the Ukraine, even when what they are saying is scripted. That's the one that really gets me, when they've written it into the teleprompter, and they're on the professional news, and they refer to the Ukraine. Uh, that, that irritated me quite a bit. So I, I want to clarify that. I wanted you to know the truth and how it works and why. And now you can go ahead and listen to impeachment and be as annoyed as I was every time someone uses the wrong phrasing. And now onto the show. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, Intercepted, On the Media, Backstory, The Sanity Cast, Amicus, Cape Up, Start Making Sense, and The Real News. We begin today's show in Washington, D.C., where more than 90 percent of House Democrats now support the impeachment of President Trump for pushing the president of Ukraine to investigate Democratic presidential candidate, his rival, Joe Biden, and his son, Hunter. On Thursday, a declassified version of a complaint by an anonymous whistleblower was released. In the nine-page document, an unnamed government whistleblower who's been identified as a CIA official, writes, quote, the president of the United States is using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 U.S. election, unquote. The complaint also revealed details about how the White House attempted to lock down all records of Trump's phone conversation with the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, soon after it happened by moving a transcript of the call to a standalone computer system reserved for code word level intelligence information. The whistleblower wrote in his complaint, quote, according to White House officials I spoke with, this was not the first time under this administration that a presidential transcript was placed into this code word level system solely for the purpose of protecting politically sensitive rather than national security sensitive information, unquote. On Thursday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi accused the Trump administration of a cover up. There is actions that are actions that are cover up. Yeah. When you take when you have a system of electronic storage for information that is specifically for national security purposes and you have something that uh, is self-serving to the president politically and decide it might not be you might not want people to know and you hide it someplace else. That's a cover up. Meanwhile, President Trump lashed out at the whistleblower and White House officials who spoke to him during remarks at a closed-door gathering of diplomats on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in New York. Trump compared the whistleblower to a treasonous spy. Audio of his remarks was leaked to the Los Angeles Times. Who's the person who gave the whistleblower the information? Because that's close to a spy. You know what we used to do in the old days where we were smart, the spies and treasons? We used to handle it a little differently than we do now. Trump also 
called reporters scum and animals. We're joined right now by James Risen, The Intercept's senior national security correspondent. He published two pieces in The Intercept this week, including a piece headlined, I wrote about the Bidens and Ukraine years ago. Then the right-wing spin machine turned the story upside down. James Risen is a former New York Times reporter. He was pursued by both the Bush and then Obama administrations as part of a six-year leak investigation into his book State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush administration. So, Jim Risen, we have a lot to talk about here. First, can you talk about the revelations in Washington, the significance of this whistleblower f coming forward, even the director of national intelligence saying that um, he did the appropriate thing, the whistleblower, you know, moving within the system, filing his complaint. Explain everything that's happened so far. <clears throat> yeah, well, there is a lot to cover. I think um, to me, this just shows, as I wrote uh, yesterday, that the, that Trump is a is a habitual criminal. Uh, this phone call with the Ukrainian president happened the day after Robert Mueller testified before Congress, basically wrapping up the, the Mueller investigation. So this, he starts in with the Ukraine interfere, uh, attempting to get the Ukraine to interfere in the U.S. 2020 election the day after Mueller completes his presence on the stage uh, in, in terms of his investigation of the 2016 Russian interference. So I think this uh, we have to step back and realize that this Ukrainian story is part of this larger picture of Trump constantly breaking the law, violating the norms of uh, society and trying to use his uh, power to uh, to damage and uh, uh, his opponents and violate the Constitution. So I think uh, if you look at it. I think one of the questions I now have is how many other countries has he done the same thing to, with that we don't know about yet? Tell us about what these allegations are, um, what Hunter Biden did in Ukraine, and then how it's been spun around. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the this is a very odd experience for me to see this story that I wrote four years ago come back in a in a this weird way. Um during in 2015, uh, while Biden was vice president, I wrote about how he was he had just gone to the Ukraine to um, uh, as sending a message really from the United States government and from other governments that uh, the Ukraine had to crack down on corruption. And in particular, there was a uh, the prosecutor general of the Ukraine who had um, been uh refusing to do anything about major corruption cases in the Ukraine. And I, I wrote that this whole effort by Biden uh, to get the uh, Ukrainians to crack down was uh, very awkward for him personally and maybe even looked at as hypocritical because his own son, Hunter Biden, was on the board of a company called Burisma, which was a uh, Ukrainian natural gas company. And the British uh, Serious Fraud Office uh, was uh, investigating Burisma and its uh, and its owner, who is a Ukrainian uh, official or former official, and uh, 
that the, the British investigation had been stymied because the Ukrainian prosecutor's office had refused to turn over documents to the British officials. And as a result, uh, the British effort to freeze uh, Burisma's assets had been uh, overturned by a British court because they couldn't get any documents from the Ukrainian uh, prosecutor. And the money that had been frozen in uh, banks in London immediately went off to offshore to Cyprus. Um, now, Biden's Hunter Biden was on the board of uh, the company at the time that the uh, assets were frozen. And he was he was on the board of Burisma at the time that the that uh, his father took this trip to uh, the Ukraine. But uh, uh, but Joe Biden went there and said, you've got to get rid of this prosecutor and you've got to crack down on corruption. The import, the the significance of his trip was that it was backed up by the whole Western world. There were several West large Western countries that were demanding that the Ukraine fire this prosecutor and get uh, and crack down on corruption. His actions to demand this, uh, the firing of this prosecutor and to ask for a greater crackdown had the effect, the possible effect of making his son have even greater legal peril than he did. Uh, by being on the board of Burisma, because it could have led to a more aggressive investigation of Burisma. Now, what has happened? So that's essentially what I wrote. But what I wrote was, this is very awkward and we and bad for politically uh, hypocritical for Biden, which was bad enough. But what happened since then is the whole right wing spin machine got involved in this story over the last four years as uh, they wanted to use it for opposition research in the 2020 election. And they say they now claim that Biden went there in order to protect his son and to fire and to get the Ukrainians to fire the prosecutor to stop him from investigating Burisma, which is the exact opposite of what happened. And And so the you know, the, the original story I wrote was bad enough for Biden, uh, but now it's taken uh, it's it's been falsified by uh, the Trump camp uh, to make it look like Biden actually was using his position to protect his son when when that's not true. Of course, President Trump is saying, <clears throat> continuing to say, investigate uh, Hunter Biden. Uh, now the former prosecutor general of Ukraine is saying Hunter Biden is not guilty. Talk about uh, Vice President Joe Biden's role in dealing with the prosecutor general on this question of whether he was trying to force him out. Yeah, I mean, I, I, he was the the point that the United States was making. Biden was just really carrying a message for the United States government, for the Obama administration, which was you have to crack down more on corruption. And that uh, they the West felt that the prosecutor in particular was uh, an obstacle to a crackdown on on corruption, not he was not leading any investigations. In fact, he was there, are, you know, reports that he was trying to blackmail uh, or get paid off by companies to stop investigations. So the idea, you know, basically what's happened is that the 
right wing twisted this story to try to make it look worse for Biden. Let's start in February 2014. Less than a year after enlisting in the Navy, Hunter Biden was discharged for pissing hot for cocaine. Luckily for him, a new opportunity was about to present itself. That same month, protesters in Maidan Square overthrew the government of Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine. We watched as protesters advanced straight into the line of fire. A few had weapons, but most were armed only with makeshift shields. They were guns down mercilessly. The new government leaned heavily toward the West and away from Russia. Remnants of the old regime became targets. One of those was a natural gas company called Borisma Holdings, which was owned by Mykola Zlochevsky, an oligarch and former government official tied to Yanukovych. Zlochevsky needed Western cred, and he needed it fast. Regulators in London had seized more than $20 million of Burisma's cash amid claims that the firm had compiled its assets illegally. Hunter Biden didn't know much about natural gas or about Ukraine. He had spent most of his career trading on his last name in between stints and rehab. But nevertheless, in 2014, Hunter went ahead and accepted an invitation to join the board of Burisma along with a fee of $50,000 per month. The Republican story around Hunter's business with Burisma in Ukraine today is that Joe Biden would later go to Ukraine to help his son Hunter, to help Burisma escape the justice of an investigation by the Ukrainian Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin. Then Vice President Joe Biden did, in fact, get the prosecutor fired. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. But Vice President Biden's intervention in Ukraine seems to have gone against the interests of his son because Shokin, the prosecutor, was busy protecting Burisma from the Western investigators. In fact, he gave the company a letter asserting that he had no evidence they had done anything wrong. That letter helped unfreeze the money in London. But Hunter Biden's very presence on the board of the company was itself corrupting the process. The fact that Joe Biden was spreading an anti-corruption message in Ukraine while his son sat on the board of Burisma made the Americans look hypocritical. And they were. The entire reason Hunter Biden was paid so handsomely to do nothing was to sell his name to the company. That's corruption. But in typical GOP fashion, Republicans couldn't hit Democrats for just that. Enter Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani began digging into the question, hoping to find evidence that Vice President Biden had actually helped his son. In the process, he seems to have gotten duped by Ukraine's tangled domestic politics and ensnared Trump along the way. Here's where the problem for Trump really began. Trump froze aid to Ukraine ahead of a July 25th phone call with President Zelensky. Trump tells him on the phone, quote, The United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. I wouldn't say that it's reciprocal necessarily because things are happening that are not good. But the United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. Zelensky agrees and adds that he would, quote, like to thank you for your great support in the area of defense. We are ready to continue to cooperate for the next steps. Specifically, we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. 
Javelins, for those who don't know, are U.S.-made, shoulder-supported anti-tank missiles. More than anything else, the Javelin's success is down to the fact that, once fired, it almost guarantees a kill every time. Trump responds immediately, quote, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say crowd strike. Dot, dot, dot. Donald Trump, when speaking with uh, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, mentioned crowd strike. Crowd strike. Very bad. Very bad group. That's why Trump told the president of Ukraine to dig into crowd strike. Everybody thinks Trump's an idiot. Oh, he mentioned crowd strike. What is that, a conspiracy theory? No, he's just about 65 steps ahead of you idiots. CrowdStrike is a reference to an idea circulating in right-wing circles that Ukraine was somehow linked to the hack of the Democratic National Committee in 2016. The thinking goes that by pinning it on hackers in Ukraine, it means that it couldn't have been done by Russia. Zelensky tells him he's happy to meet with Giuliani and that, quote, I guarantee as the president of Ukraine that all the investigations will be done openly and candidly. That I can assure you. Trump continues, quote, the other thing, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution, and a lot of people want to find out about that. So whatever you can do with the attorney general would be great. Biden went around bragging that he stopped the prosecution. So if you can look into it. Trump tells Zelensky, quote, I will have Mr. Giuliani give you a call, and I am also going to have Attorney General Barr call, and we will get to the bottom of it. I'm sure you will figure it out. After the call ended, administration officials, recognizing what had just happened, ordered that it not be distributed as normal, and instead was stuffed into a closed-off classified network. Several news organizations have granted Trump's unfounded allegations the same consideration as the undisputed fact of Trump's own possibly impeachable act. The Biden story, Fellows wrote, has become the, quote, patient zero of the next false equivalency epidemic. Perhaps because, as in previous trumped-up scandals, the tissue of lies has threads of tantalizing fact. Adam Entis of The New Yorker this summer wrote a long profile of Joe Biden's son, Hunter, and it is an eyebrow raiser. Entis looked into the president's claim that Joe Biden pressured Ukraine to thwart an investigation into his son's company, but... I found that the investigation uh, had already been dismissed by the previous prosecutor's office, and that this prosecutor was not pursuing an investigation of the company where Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, was working. When Joe Biden pushed the president of Ukraine to fire the prosecutor. He was doing so at the request of the American government, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, the Europeans that thought the prosecutor was not pursuing corruption investigations. Now, this is a non-scandal that Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, in spite of everything he just said, has been howling about for months. But when it all blew up this week, you we're in a doubly unusual position. You had done this very long story. You already knew that there was no there there about Joe Biden and shutdown investigations. But you also knew about the many skeletons in Hunter Biden's closet, his car, 
his resume, his web browser, his blood tests, etc. Not a portrait of stability. Whenever Joe Biden was running for office, this issue came up over and over again. Joe Biden was, uh, you know, Delaware senator, which is home to MBNA, the bank. And uh, after Hunter got out of Yale Law School, he got a job at MBNA Bank, which happened to be one of his father's largest contributors. And the accusations at the time was very similar, actually, to the accusations today, which is that Hunter Biden is trading on his father's name to get these positions to curry favor with the senator. And that's really the same issue that repeats itself over and over again and is a legitimate subject of scrutiny when it comes to his business dealings when his father's vice president, and those would be the, the business dealings that he does in Ukraine and China. Yeah, you wrote that there's, quote, little question that Hunter's proximity to power shaped the arc of his career. Isn't that the swamp? It's not just the perception of conflict. It's a business model. It's exactly what makes proximity to power such a lucrative commodity. Can we presume, getting back to Ukraine, that his seat on the board of a large natural gas producer there was not based on some background in energy markets or fossil fuels. I can say this, that by talking to members of the board who sat alongside a hunter during those years, the five years that he was on the board, he told me and they verified that he made it very clear from the beginning that he would not talk to his father or U.S. government about the company and its activities. As far as I could tell, that was a policy that was not breached during Hunter's five years with the board. He had a don't ask, don't tell policy with his father. And this is so if a reporter like myself, or if you were to ask, why did your son do this deal, Joe Biden and his staff can genuinely say, we didn't even know he was doing it. But, you know, I was kind of mystified by why Joe Biden's aides and the State Department officials and White House officials, they told me that they were disturbed by Hunter's decision to join this board. And yet they told me that they never really raised it with Joe Biden. They said they were intimidated. One of them told me that the best way to uh, not advance in government uh, is to uh, criticize the son uh, of a politician to that politician. So there was this uh, self-censorship, I think, that went on. I only was able to find one aide in the administration, a, a Ukraine expert, who does eventually raise it with the vice president. And he doesn't tell the vice president that he should ask his son to step down from the board. He just tells him, hey, uh, we're going to be going to Kiev. And every time we go to Kiev, R Russian propaganda stations promote this story. So they wanted the vice president to be prepared to answer questions if he was asked about his son. I believe that's the conversation that prompts the one conversation that I was able to document between Hunter Biden and his father. Hunter told me that he got a call from his dad. His dad said, I hope you know what you're doing, son. And Hunter responds by saying, I do. And he goes on and continues on that board and continues to obviously receive funds from the company through uh, just this spring. If your head is spinning right now, know that you're not alone. There's a lot going on and there's a lot of talk about impeachment in U.S. history which is why we wanted to do what we do best, offer some historical perspective. So think of this episode as a kind of emergency roundtable on impeachment in the past, present, and possibly future of American history. Why don't we go back, Joanne, to the very beginning, to the founders in the Constitution? 
What do they have to say about impeachment when they first drafted the Constitution? Right. Um, in this case, the most important thing to remember is that one of the main concerns of, of the framers was the channeling of power. And the Constitution really is a system of checks and balances about where power can go. And one form of power that they were really concerned about, and it's not surprising given that they had just won a revolution in which they'd revolted against a monarch that they felt was misusing power, was mm -hmm. executive power. They were right. very worried about executive power. So they were certainly very concerned about having some sort of way to rein it in. And that's where the basic idea of impeachment comes from. And it's also partly why that process is divided between the House, which can bring charges essentially of impeachment, and the Senate, which acts as a jury. It's both houses of Congress. So it's part of a series of, of checks and balances. But what's interesting about it, there were not organized political parties when this idea of impeachment was being tossed around. They didn't like parties, right? I mean, they mm. thought it was a dumb idea. Well, a, a dangerous idea. They mm -hmm. thought that parties were a sign that people, <laughs> surprise, were thinking about themselves and not the general good. So beginning years of the government, when it looked like parties were forming, that was a sort of alarm bell moment in the founding era. People thought, oh no, the whole thing's going down, we're forming political parties. So there wasn't an assumption that, there would be wrestling when it comes to impeachment with the very sorts of things that in later years we have been wrestling with, which is what happens when one party controls one or both houses of Congress, another party has the presidency, and you have one of these moments in which, on the one hand, it has to do potentially with high crimes and misdemeanors, or it also has to do with partisan politics. But there was an assumption about something we are wrestling with today very much, Joe. And I, I want to get your views on this. I mean, they were particularly concerned about interference of foreign powers, right? Yes. So if you project yourself back to that time period, you know, we were so uh, new and powerless and there were these major empires around the world with these imperious monarchs. So we didn't have power. And as a republic rather than a monarchy, what we were doing in the United States was experimental. So absolutely, there was fear all the time about, on the one hand, how foreign nations might interfere by messing with the popular part of politics. They could get the people riled up about something. Or that a president and a foreign power might find themselves entangled in some way, deliberately or otherwise. And that one or the other mm -hmm. of those things essentially could take control of the American politics, and in a sense, worst of all, the American electoral process. So obviously the, the founders are, are very good at thinking about process in a, in a whole host of ways. And, and in the case of impeachment, I, I wonder what the process actually was as outlined by them. Well, right. I mean, they did look across the ocean at England, which had its own sort of version of impeachment, usually applied to the king's ministers, not to the king himself. And in the British version of impeachment, the House of Commons would essentially bring charges. The House of Lords would act as a kind of jury and decide on the whole issue of impeachment. Now, the difference in England, if you're impeached, it's essentially a criminal charge. In the United States, the decision was if you're fully impeached and the decision goes against you, you're removed from office and you can't hold public office again. So it's not a criminal charge in the United States as it was conceived at the time, but that touches on another issue. And that is very deliberately the account of what the crimes are that a president can do that merit impeachment are very general. 
They're they're very broad. Right. Tell us about the first time that all of this was really put into action big time with Andrew Johnson. Right. And there are some interesting similarities between the impeachment of Andrew Johnson in 1868 and the present. This was during the moment of Reconstruction. There were what at the time would have been known as radical Republicans in Congress who were actively and aggressively trying to work towards Reconstruction. Johnson, as president, became president after the assassination of Lincoln, was basically in one way or another soft on the South, soft on the former Confederacy. And so there was a a real rivalry, a real sort of back and forth between Congress and the executive. So already there was opposition between Congress and the president. The question was, was Congress going to do anything about it? And in the end, what provoked the impeachment was Johnson violates what was called the Tenure of Office Act, which had been passed just the year before, which said that the president can't dismiss Senate-approved government officials without congressional approval. Hmm. So Johnson violates that by firing his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. And although that sounds minor, it was kind of a way to open the door towards Mm -hmm. impeachment. And then other charges were added on. In the end, with the Senate acting as jury, he was not removed from office. And I believe it came down to one vote. It was not a straight partisan vote. People really thought hard about whether this seemed to merit removal from office. And because the law had some gray area in it, the the Tenure of Office Act, they decided against it. My understanding of of the Johnson case in particular, and, and this feels at least like something that has some parallels with the 20th century examples, is that the real concern was about executive power. And it's that's not a partisan question, but it, it is one about the, the separation of powers and Congress really trying after the Civil War to, to be clear about the, the people still being largely in charge of how the government functions. And so to the, to the point about embarrassing a chief executive, I think part of that energy and um, use of the impeachment power was about reminding, in in some ways, the entire political system that the Congress is the broadest base of the political system and, and has like the broadest powers relative to how the other two branches function. Point one, Trump pressured Ukraine to manufacture dirt on Biden. That is confirmed. Number two, military aid to Ukraine was held up for unknown reasons. That is confirmed. Number three, call records were hidden in a classified system and covered up. Okay, this is why the 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 inspector general found the whistleblower credible. Now, let's go through it. Number four. This is a big point. Liberals are throwing around this word treason. I think they should stop. It is a high crime, but it's not treason. What Trump has done is not treason. It might be treason us, but it's not treason. Treason means working with the enemy of the United States against the U.S. He wasn't doing that. The Ukraine is not our enemy. They might be our new BFF. And I say this not to take the fun away from saying treason, but we're going to have to get our language really right when we debate our right-wing loved ones. Number five, a majority of Americans, 55%, now say an impeachment inquiry into Trump is necessary. 42% say he should be impeached immediately. Only 36% say he should not be impeached. 22% say it's too soon to tell. Obviously, these numbers are much higher with Democrats. The point is interesting. Nancy Pelosi, for months and months and months, was getting so much abuse for holding back on moving forward with impeachment. She had a couple of red lines. One was it had to be bipartisan. 
which it briefly was with Justin Amash when he left the GOP, but then he became an independent, so that's gone. Her other one was it has to have the support of the majority of Americans, and it didn't until she caved. And isn't that interesting? As soon as Speaker Pelosi got behind an impeachment inquiry, boom, the approval rate shot up. Keep that in mind for the next couple of months. Number six, as it stands now, 224 Democrats in the House support impeachment with 12 undecided. Justin Amash, the independent, is with the Democrats. 143 Republicans have said they will vote against it. And 35 Republican senators would vote for an inquiry if the vote were anonymous in case you're doing a census of cowards. Number seven. Mitch McConnell. All comes down to this guy, right? If you were thinking he might try to Merrick Garland this thing away, he told NPR last March, which translated means, if impeachment were to happen, the Senate has no choice. If the House were to act, the Senate immediately goes into a trial. Now, that's interesting because he could still call a vote on a motion to dismiss, which would eventually amount to a vote to acquit Trump of wrongdoing. And don't be surprised if he doesn't. But he's on the record as saying the Senate immediately goes to trial. And I got to think, even though the senators on the GOP side have only said they would vote against him if it was anonymous, there's got to be at least 10 who'd be willing to remove this president because they'd rather get a fat book deal than be reelected. Number eight, here's the most important thing for me. Nancy Pelosi is not setting up an impeachment committee. She's using six different committees, Judiciary, Oversight, Intel, Ways and Means, Financial Services Committee, and Foreign Affairs, and more or less telling them, give me everything you got, because it would be such a mistake if the Democrats focused narrowly on just this instance with the whistleblower and Ukraine. This man is unfit for office in many, many ways. Congress has to draw the public attention to Trump's failures to uphold his responsibilities as president, which means they got to throw everything at the wall here. And I hope they will. They could do up to 15 or 20 different counts. I mean, you got 10 counts of obstruction from the Mueller report alone. Those can be impeached tomorrow. They're written up, ready to prosecute. But you've also got the campaign finance violations uh, with Stormy Daniels. You've also got of course, the uh, uh, wire fraud, money fraud, bank fraud, Trump's taxes, the emoluments clause violations. You get the idea. This cannot be limited to just criminal instances and this one story. Number nine, um, impeachment's important because it can help the public. It'll build public awareness of what our Constitution is, what norms are. It can set the stage for an eventual rem- removal for Trump's high crimes. But even if He's not removed. It still has to happen, if for nothing else, to keep this man and his administration in check and to let future generations know we tried to do something. It's going to be so important when we talk about this with our right-wing loved ones that we speak in plain language and we don't drag it into politics, okay? They have to just directly reference the constitutional provisions they think Trump violated. And most importantly, we can't drag the political differences into it. Even if you don't like what Trump does and the stealing children and the economic record and the trickle down, that's not going to be on trial. Only threats to our system should ever be mentioned in talking about impeachment. It's a really important detail. Okay, number 10, the whistleblower complaint added, according to White House officials I spoke with, this was not the first time under this administration that a presidential transcript was placed into this code word level system solely for the purpose of protecting politically sensitive rather than national security sensitive information. That's a big detail. That's because his conversations that were recorded with both Putin And MBS are also in that server. It's a cover-up. They are obstructing justice. 
Number 11, the pushback. And man, they are doing it. Rudy Giuliani completely steamrolled George Stephanopoulos on uh, on ABC uh, over the weekend. You've got to see it to believe it. He took over the entire hour. Rudy is willing to look like a doddering old coot and just toss out conspiracy theories about Hunter Biden wearing white after Labor Day for 20 minutes. But you know what he did? He totally owned the narrative. Stephanopoulos lost control of his broadcast. It has to be watched to be believed. Likewise, Steve Scalise trounced uh, Chuck Todd on meet the press. But Jake Tapper, God bless him. You got to watch him holding Jim Jordan's feet to the fire and calling out the lies because they're going to come at this really hardcore. Donald Trump and the goons believe that they can use Ukraine and uh, to get reelection and that Hunter Biden is going to be the new emails. They're going to do it by exactly what they did against Hillary. Axios had a six part playbook. Number one, argue your opponent is guilty of something just as bad or worse than you. Number two, constant fog on Twitter. Tell them the media is guilty, too. Number three, convince the party leaders and Fox News to fall in line, focused only on Biden's son. Uh, number four, demand documents and demand testimony and, and to keep demanding irrelevant things just to foster an everybody's dirty and hiding something atmosphere. Again, it's exactly what they did with Hillary's emails. Number five, stymie anyone who's on your side who's thinking of dissenting like they did to Romney. And finally, um, bet that your own standing while not getting better won't get worse. And Biden is going to be trying to fight back and not let Trump pin him in a corner. The other Democrats are going to be wondering how hard do we run against Trump and how hard do we run against Biden? Biden already put out a statement saying Congress has to do its thing. Uh, he, I think Biden shouldn't worry about going after Trump on policies. Biden needs to say, well, let's talk about your kids business dealing. And Biden should just pull a Trump and make this all about Ivanka's trademarks China has granted and all the international business dealings of Trump's two eldest sons, Fredo and Shemp. Okay, uh, back to the list. Number 12. Carl Bernstein said it. Hunter Biden is a legitimate story to be looked at in terms of his role in this Ukrainian gas company. But if anyone has a history of terrible conflict of interest by his children, it is this president of the U.S. And we ought to be looking at all these questions about the children of presidents and VPs. So kids are on the menu. Carl Bernstein says so. And yeah, I recommend when you're debating with your loved ones, say, I think Hunter Biden should be investigated. And I think Trump's kids should. And everything Trump has done. Don't you? Number 13, stop asking what happened to Lindsey Graham. Stop it. I'm so tick- sick of liberals and moderates and celebrities saying, I don't understand. He he impeached Bill Clinton for nothing, for just lying to hide an affair. And, and now he's defending high crimes. What ha- Nothing happened to Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham has not changed. He's the same guy he's always been. He said and did anything for donors and votes two years ago. He's going to say and do anything for donors and votes now. Lindsey Graham's absence of integrity has never wavered. It has always been uh, straight. Number 14, the good news, Giuliani. Come on, smile about this. As of this recording, he just got subpoenaed. The man is working for free, and he is worth every penny. I, I find it delightful. Rudy once bragged that he chased all the peep shows out of Times Square, and now he's an old guy who can't stop exposing himself in public. Um, 15, Paul Ryan, according to Vanity Fair, is on the board of Fox, as we know, and he's advising Lachlan Murdoch that Fox News has to put some space between them and Trump. And even Hannity is privately saying that the Ukraine scandal is really bad. This is hilarious for many reasons. Paul Ryan finally feels like he can do something about Trump, but he couldn't when he was Speaker of the House. I apologize to all the invertebrates for all the times I called him spineless. And Hannity 
Hannity says this is really bad. Well, can someone please tell Hannity that uh, now that you're woke, there were never any WMDs and Bush's economic plans didn't work and Obama's birth certificate was never a controversy and Sarah Palin was never qualified and George Zimmerman was always a racist murderer. Okay, uh, we're almost done. Uh, Again, these are the top 20 points to keep in mind. And number 16, and this is Fox News. Fox News has learned the Pentagon, State Department, and National Security Council were unanimous in supporting the aid to Ukraine and that Trump acted alone in withholding the aid over the summer. Fox News. Save that one from your racist uncle. Number 17. Ex-George W. Bush White House National Security Advisor uh, Corey Shockey, who said whistleblower's account seems convincing that the president was using our foreign policy to blackmail a foreign country into assisting his reelection. Beyond the pale, I believe the president's conduct merits impeachment. There are Republicans out there saying this. Their talking points matter more than any Democrats. Uh, number 18, just keep an eye out for the subpoenas. Mike Pence, Bill Barr, Mike Pompeo, acting DNI, Joseph McGuire and Giuliani. And of course, uh, U.S. Special Representative Kurt Volker, who just uh, quit a couple days ago. I swear to God, man, if, if, if Thanos had hired Rudy Giuliani to be his lawyer, the Avengers could have just stayed home and he would have destroyed himself in minutes. OK, uh, almost done. Number 19. Keep this in mind. It was July 16th, 2018, Helsinki, that Trump reiterated that he took Putin's word over all American intel while he was betraying the United States. Now we learn in 2017 in the Oval Office that not only did Trump acknowledge that he knew Russia meddled, he told the Russians in the Oval Office he didn't mind it. That was in 2016. I'm sorry, 2017. And in 2018 came Helsinki when Trump said, uh, Putin said he didn't do it. I see no reason not to believe him. Throw this in the faces of every right-wing loved one who says no collusion. Finally, number 20, the most important fact, Trump does not need to have broken the law to be impeached. That's major. You can impeach someone even if they haven't broken a law. More facts are coming by the hour. Comb over Caligula is using it. But again, Trump has solicited help from a foreign government to aid in his election two times, and both times he tried to cover it up. He's not a president. He's history's IQ test for America. There's a little bit of a race against time now uh, because Democrats want to do a thorough job, but they also don't want to be having an impeachment trial in the Senate in October before the 2020 election. And so I think that has sparked some real internal debate uh, within the members of the House about whether it makes sense to look at All of the impeachable offenses, including obstruction of justice episodes that were flagged in the Mueller report, the emoluments violations, uh, or does it just make sense to narrow, narrow, narrow the scope of this inquiry into these recent 
this week uh, developments where we have a whistleblower in the intelligence community divulging uh, details about a July phone call between President Trump and the president of Ukraine, uh, in which it seems as though Trump conditioned uh, the delivery of a reported $400 million in military aid uh, on getting a, quote, favor back, uh, which would be Ukraine reopening investigations into the Bidens. So does it make sense to go big or go small? Do you have some sense in terms of process, which is the way to go? I think going small is the way to go. I don't have any particular expertise on this, but I think a single article of impeachment focused on the president's call and interaction with the chief official of Ukraine as a single article of impeachment is the way to go for the following reasons. First, let's look at the broader scheme and then come back to what we know about the phone call to Ukraine's leader. On the larger issue, I think what happened is that the Democrats simply totally blew it in the 36 hours after the release of the Mueller report. I was thinking, sadly, that when the history is is written of this, that uh, Trump would have escaped being called to account because of how badly the reaction to the Mueller report was handled. It was and is remains a mystery to me. Uh, I wrote a piece about it called The Redaction Distraction in the Washington Post that went like this, that the country, obviously, people being too busy to read 500 pages of dense Mueller reportage, looked at the political leadership. And the responses were mendacious from one party, timid from the other, and both were wrong. The Republicans said no collusion, no obstruction, case closed, which was a completely false narrative. And the Democrats responded by saying, we need to see the redactions. And we need to hear from some witnesses. We need to see the grand jury testimony. You didn't need any of that. The uh, the statement should have been that um, even on, quote, collusion, where Trump was most re- reported to have been vindicated, that alone, the president clearly welcomed foreign interference in the 2016 presidential election. And the Mueller report stopped short of asserting that his conduct was, or that of others in the campaign was criminal by saying they could not find an express agreement between Russian military operatives and campaign officials to believe that they could prove beyond a reasonable doubt the element of a conspiracy. But the president's own welcoming actions were no. And then obstruction of justice, you know, every prosecutor you know is going to tell you that there are somewhere between five and nine dead bang obstructions of justice felonies by the president. But what the Democrats said was, we don't know enough. And that, I think, allowed the voices uh, chanting uh, no collusion, no obstruction to to carry the day. And it was hard to go back and say, no, wait a minute. Actually, it turns out if you read the report, everything there was massive criminality on the part of the president of the most profound kind, an attempt to subvert democratic governance. But the moment passed. So now I thought, you know, we'll never call him to account when here we have a whistleblower come up with a single instance of his continuing to do as president of the United States with all of that power to be completely complicit, 
conspiratorial and collusive in an effort to interfere with the presidential election. So I think they have to reluctantly give up because the, the public erroneously thinks uh, the Mueller report was largely a vindication, which is exactly backwards. But now we have a fresh thing. And what is most useful about it is we have one very key witness to presidential attempt to interfere in the 2020 uh, presidential election. And that key witness is Donald J. Trump, who is on the record about what he did uh, and is defending it and defending what, what he did. It maps on exactly to what was so profoundly wrong about what Nixon did in Watergate. Both Watergate and the Ukrainian situation are attempts by a sitting president to distort and control the outcome of a presidential election, which is a crime against democracy. In Nixon's case, he was running two years out, even behind Ed Muskie of Maine, a moderate, and Watergate was an attempt to use burglars and every other method of disruption to make sure that the Democrats nominated a far left, just like George McGovern, instead of a moderate centrist like Ed Muskie. And they basically su succeeded in doing that. It wasn't just a third-rate burglary. It was an attempt to subvert the Constitution and to use corrupt means to influence a presidential election. And that is exactly what is happening. And I think why it was sent such shockwaves through political... Uh, uh, Washington, when the whistleblower complained about the intervention with the Ukrainians, is that it demonstrated that Donald Trump is going to use the, whatever foreign interference he can. And if he gets away with this, he wouldn't have stopped there. He can call upon the North Koreans, who he inexplicably has made love to a gruesome, brutal dictator with hundreds of thousands of people in concentration camps in his country. He's, he's made up nicely to the butcher of, of Saudi Arabia, and so that he was going to go all out to use corrupt means to influence the 2020 presidential election in a way that is going to be much more serious than, than what Nixon did to try to influence the 1972 presidential election. That has to be the answer to people who are saying, oh, can't we just not do the impeachment? Can't we just wallop Trump by 10 million votes in 2020? Why do we have to do this in an impeachment process? Can't we just do it at the ballot box? And what you're saying is, no, because he's broken the ballot box. <laughs> that doesn't work anymore. The idea that we would count on winning while we stood back and Congress and the Democratic leadership in the House took no action. It's no accident that it was the day after Robert Mueller's public congressional testimony that Donald Trump was on the phone saying to Ukraine, it's a shame if you didn't get this defense money to protect you from the Russians. And by the way, you haven't been reciprocal. And here's the favor I need. You need to open an investigation where there was nothing to investigate. Look, I mean, it means that uh, they were going to expose the Democratic nominee if he keeps this up using foreign sources of highly sophisticated, the North Koreans put all of their money into their cyber capacity. They were going to make sure that the Trump people, they're running against a felon of some kind by making it up uh, with foreign help. That's when everybody realized they had no choice but to proceed.
can we talk about about how this process is going to work? Your former colleague, who's now uh, a colleague of mine at the paper, former Congresswoman Donna Edwards, had an op-ed in the paper where she basically says that the idea of having six separate committees doing this work is is bananas. And what she says is that it should be one chairman, one lawyer asking questions. Do you agree? Well, I, th- I think she does not really understand uh, you know, what uh, is being done and how it's being done. It is not six separate committees doing this work. It is six committees who have been involved in investigations for some period of time who are going to put all of their information on the table with the speaker and come out with the articles of impeachment that will be turned over to the Judiciary Committee. And then the Judiciary Committee will do what the Constitution says they should do. They're the ones who will go through the uh, articles of impeachment and vote on it and decide, uh, you know, whether or not it should be voted out of their committee. Okay. So, so, so the impeachment six committees come together, put all the stuff on the table with the speaker. And then the, the the proposed resolution goes to the chairman of the judiciary committee, which is Congressman Nadler of New New York. Then is there a, are there hearings yes. on those, on yes. those articles? Yes. Yes. Witnesses called yes. in and mm-hmm. they so, do the work. Mm-hmm. The, the, so the judiciary that, committee. Judiciary yeah. committee yeah. does the work. That's right. And then it goes, it, it, it goes to a vote in the committee. Uh huh. Then, then to goes, the floor. then goes to the floor. And then it goes to the Senate. I mean, right now, the Democratic caucus has gone over the magic number mm-hmm. of 218 of That's people right. who say in some form or another, yes. they would favor an yes. impeachment of, right. of the president. How quickly is this going to happen? Because a lot of people think that because the 2020 election season is upon us, that it doesn't, like, how is this going to fit? How quickly is this process going to move? Well, um, we're all committed to moving this process very quickly. And the further away from the election it, it is, the better it is. You know, getting into the elections at the same time that you're doing the impeachment is confusing. And we don't want that kind of confusion. So we're going to move quickly. Quickly, meaning before Thanksgiving, before Halloween? Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> quickly. What do you think? Let me put you, okay. have you put your hat on and see if you can give us an insight as to what you think the other side of this building, because we're in your office, at, uh, we're, yes. we're at the Rayburn yes. building, but the people, the folks on the other side of the Capitol in the Senate, what do you think Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is going to do? Well, here's what, and let me uh, take you back through again uh, all of the many hours and days I've had to think about this and why I resisted the thinking of so many who said, to start impeachment proceedings is useless because the Senate will never, ever uh, impeach the President of the United States. I've never believed that if you have concrete information, if you have connected the dots, if you have certain facts, that you cannot get members on the, on the opposite side of the aisle and the Senate to change their minds. I just left the floor with a member, a Republican member who whispered in my ear, don't stop. 
You go ahead and you get him. He said, do you remember who I am? You remember we walked together when we went to a rally after 9-11? He said, and I tell everybody, I have the greatest respect for you, and I understand what you're doing. You just keep doing it. You just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, th- that's incredible, but does it not make you want to scream that this Republican member won't go to the microphones and say that publicly? Of course, I, that's extremely frustrating and disappointing, but I think we are coming to a point where they're going to have to. Many of them are going to have to. Whether we're talking about Republicans in this House or we're talking about U.S. Senators, I believe that this Ukraine scandal is a tipping point and that uh, many of them are going to have to live up to the facts that this president of the United States has disgraced us, that he has misused the uh, office of the presidency, uh, that he is corrupt, and that he's dangerous, and that they're going to have to move. There are a lot of reasons not to do this, which we've heard many times. Some of our friends say, what's the point of an impeachment inquiry in the House? Removing Trump from office requires a two-thirds vote in the Senate. The Senate Republicans are never going to do that. So this is a big waste of time. And really, we should be spending our time talking about the positive things that a Trump successor will do. Medicare for all, free college tuition, a $15 minimum wage. This is what's really important. This is what the Democrats should make their lead ideas. Isn't this the best way to remove Trump from office? I'm not unsympathetic to that in the sense that I always think it's better to argue for what you're going to do rather than like depend on scandals. But the fact is that Trump is trying to interfere with the election and trying to sort of corrupt the election. So you can't like say, well, we need an election to solve Trump if he's also corrupting the election at the same time. There's a quote from Trump who said on Monday, if a Republican ever did what Joe Biden did, referring to corruption in the Ukraine, if a Republican ever said what Joe Biden said, they'd be getting the electric chair right now. Close quote. Uh, What do you make of that kind of talk? Well, it's the usual kind of, you know, crackpot, threatening language that Trump uses, um, but it's also very much part of his strategy that he's used successfully so far, which is that if he's ever accused of corruption, it's not so much he didn't do it, it's like, well, the other side is bad as well, you know? Like, it's the uh, but her emails argument. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I do feel that there's um, much of the accusation against Joe Biden personally is doesn't hold up, but there's a smidge in the here which is um, can be used by the Republicans, and I think will be used uh, which is that there is something very shady about the fact that um, Hunter Biden had um, uh, a position with a Ukrainian energy company uh, that paid $50,000 a month. So if an impeachment proceeding begins, what will it look like? What will it be taking up? Well, I mean, aside from this uh, current matter of um, sort of Ukrainian influence, or, uh, I think that like the whole um, Mueller report 
is kind of like a rich territory. I mean, it documents, you know, many cases of obstruction of justice. So I, I feel like that would be more than fair. And I think that there are a lot of other issues you know, involving emoluments that haven't been raised by Congress yet, but which, uh, you know, an impeachment inquiry could definitely include. So I, I feel like there's like a kind of like a, a rich tapestry of corruption to bring up. And there could be a separate article impeachment for each of these. It really depends on how they want to go. Like in, in some ways, maybe the politically wise thing is to just focus on um, this Ukrainian business and not get bogged down in, in all the other stuff. Uh, because this is, I mean, I think that uh, the political advantage of this is that it has this national security component. And, you know, it could be a way of... Um, challenging Republicans. And I feel like there's a lot of indication that a lot of Republicans are very uneasy about all this and that they're not stepping forward to defend Trump as they have in other cases. I don't understand. I I really don't. As somebody who's written several books on impeachment and a lot about it over many years. I think I know the history, I would argue, as well as anyone. Um, certainly I've read all the I've read all the Constitutional Convention notes, uh, the the core statements on it, looked at every impeachment throughout history. Um, I don't know why we suddenly think, oh, this is so complicated. It's not. It's not complicated. But, but, but let's talk about that for a moment. I mean, because you, you do yeah. know the history and you've, you've written books and articles about the history. But let's talk about yeah. this for a second. So you look back in our yeah. history. So Andrew Johnson, um, that impeachment had to do with mostly the radical Republicans who really wanted reconstruction to happen. And, and they went after Johnson. And, and it was a political act. That, I mean, he should have been impeached. He lost by one vote. So it didn't happen. Um, yeah. And then you have the impeachment of, of Bill Clinton. That didn't happen either. I mean, that, that was clearly a, a partisan push. So I'm, when you look at those, and we can take Richard Nixon, which is completely different because of what they were caught doing with Watergate, uh, which even forced many Republicans to uh, endorse that impeachment process after a while. At the end of the day. At yeah. the end of the yeah. day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I literally, yes, at the end of the day. But, but that still happened. So no one... There's not been a president yet who's actually been who's actually been removed from office because of an impeachment process. Other than Nixon, who resigned, that right. didn't go through it, right? So, what does this right. come and out at the end of the day if Republicans control the Senate, even though there could be a push in the House over these issues? Where do you see this going? This is why I love impeachment. Impeachment is so cool. That's a great bumper it sticker. Is, I love impeachment. <laughs> it is so cool. It is so impressive. It is such a powerful tool. That. Um, the impeachment is not done very often, but when it has been done, one president who was impeached decided not to run for re-election. Another president who's threatened with impeachment decided to quit rather than base the actual vote. Uh, if you go back into, you know, proposals to impeach, like the proposal of House and Senate Republicans to impeach Harry Truman for seizing the steel plants in 1952, it didn't even get to introducing resolutions uh, before you had everybody scrambling back from it. And again, in that case, Truman announcing very shortly thereafter that he wasn't going to run for re-election. Um, the, the fact of the matter is the genius of impeachment is impeachment, not the trial in the Senate. When a president is impeached, when a president is, you know, in the political context, indicted, 
for his or her wrongdoing, it is at that point that, you know, the accountability bell goes off. Now, the Senate may, as it has in, in judicial impeachments and some other ones along the way, the Senate may actually take it to trial and remove the person. That, that could happen. But um, even if it does not, the reality of it, the reality that the Congress of the United States has, has put this marker down uh, has tremendous meaning, tremendous power. It always has throughout history. There's simply no question of it. And uh, what I would suggest to you is that if the House impeaches Donald Trump, tremendous pressure will be put on the Senate. We will see what the Senate does. If the Senate uh, chooses, as I expect, to defend Donald Trump, so be it. Then the process is done, but the impeachment is real, and we then move to the point where the American people get to weigh in, which is the most wonderful thing of all. Um, you get to have an election in 2020. On one side, you've got Trump, his corruption, and the people who defended that corruption. On the other side, you've got people who challenged that corruption and, and proposed to replace it. That's a better election than most. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, laying the groundwork and explaining the real story of Joe Biden's son. Intercepted followed up with even more details on Hunter Biden. On the media, dispelled the looming false equivalency. Backstory explained the history of impeachment. John Fugelsang on the Sanity Cast laid out 20 important facts for your arsenal of talking points. Amicus tied the current impeachment events back to the missed opportunity of the Mueller investigation. Cape Up spoke with Maxine Waters on the impeachment process. Start Making Sense talked through some more of the ins and outs. And finally, we just heard The Real News speaking with John Nichols about the genius of impeachment. Members already got their bonus content this week. I thought... It was going to be futile to include bonus clips about impeachment because, you know, two days will go by and everything will have changed. Uh, so I, I covered lots of additional material on mental health, uh, lightened it up with more discussion about political comedy. And speaking of political comedy, more on that in a few minutes. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in regarding your September 11th edition. And actually, the non-caller, the person who wrote you an email... And I wanted to first applaud the fact that they reached out, period. And I welcome them to send you more emails because obviously I can't extend that olive branch. But, you know, this is about communication and communication takes many forms. And somebody who maybe have lost their voice can't call in. So there's many reasons. So please, people of all all areas share your thoughts regardless of whether they are in voice or not i value everybody's opinion i value all the calls i hear even when i probably sometimes even more so when i disagree with them they they make me think more but 
thank you for sharing your your letter and your story and we would love or i would love to hear more of your opinions and so forth so no shame no no embarrassment no no nothing just you know it's about sharing your voices and having be heard and i think this is a very safe place to do that obviously and i hope that other people will too so uh keep up the good work stay awesome and stay uh not vocal but sharing your your thoughts and your your feelings hey jay this is roger ray in springfield missouri as you know i'm a big fan i rarely miss an episode I applaud your decision to take more vacation time. I am trying hard to uh, work the same kind of thing into my career as I get closer to retirement. And I appreciate the research that you do. As you know, probably more often than you clip material from my sermons and lectures, I find resources and ideas from your program for my future work. So I really appreciate what you do. I have a mild objection to some of the content in episode 1309. You know, as a religious professional, I deal with a lot of irrational thought. And I keep reminding folks of Voltaire's saying, those who can persuade you to believe in absurdities can get you to commit atrocities. It is very important when you're talking about matters of war and peace, matters of economy and addressing poverty, matters of climate science, that we deal with fact-based or evidence-based convictions. So one of the clips that you used was of someone that was saying, I'm an empath, which is not different from people declaring I'm a psychic, or I'm a palm reader, or I do tarot cards. Even if what they are saying at that particular moment is important and fundamentally true, if the way that they are getting at the information is nothing but self-aggrandizing wish fulfillment, then it makes everything else that they say suspect. For example, the Church of Scientology is not incorrect to be suspicious about a lot of antidepressants and serotonin and psychotropic drugs, but what they offer as an alternative and their convictions about humans uh, being from space aliens and what have you is baloney. Uh, The Mormon church can be admired for their loving family values emphasis, but You know, when you put that in a package with magic underwear and all kinds of other insane truth claims, then then the conclusions that they reach about happy and joyful family life. So I just I just want to encourage you to avoid the kind of Marianne Williamson. If we all think about it together, we can push a hurricane offshore kind of thinking. And I know that will offend some people, but really the stakes are too high to run the risk of placing our confidence in the hands of people that are not uh, critical thinkers. Again, appreciate your work. 
enjoy your vacation time and uh, I always look forward to the next episode Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Quick response to Roger Ray, because to be honest, uh, you know, maybe maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. But to me, you know, Roger's call was very similar to Aaron from Philly's call about the previous episode, and both of them ended up calling me out, I think quite rightly, on a couple of clips that slipped by that just, they didn't fulfill the promise of the title of the show, let's put it that way. And I gotta be honest, no, no excuses, I, I heard those clips, and my, my red flag, just, it didn't go all the way up. You know, when my red flag goes all the way up, well, it doesn't end up as a clip in the show. My red flag goes up, like, a little bit. And I thought, like, huh, that's weird. Other than that, it is pretty okay. But, you know, the red flag just like, huh? Is that, uh, you know? And and so, um, as I said, no excuses. I'm just going to say, you know, I must not be as, as sharp as I usually feel like I am. And I'm going to chalk that up to need for a vacation. Speaking of which, I'm going on vacation, so I want you all to know that uh, there will be no new episodes next week, so be prepared for that. Uh, I expect to see you all here back the following week, I think October 15th. I'm planning on coming back for you know normal Tuesday episode, and keep in mind that I just told a story on the show about my childhood trauma that uh, led me to have the false belief that, you know, I was going to be abandoned by friends and, and uh, you know, not followed or respected. And so uh, if you're all gone when I get back, it'll be crushing. So let's let's have that not happen. One last note before I go, though. I, I want to give an update on impeachment. Obviously, I couldn't, couldn't do up-to-the-minute uh, news because it's all going to be out of date in a second anyway. So the, I just want to add... Uh, the update that wasn't included in the show, which is, of course, that Trump pivoted from denying that anything was wrong with his call with the Ukrainian president and shifted his strategy back to hypernormalization, wherein he does everything so brashly that it couldn't possibly be illegal. It couldn't possibly be wrong. Otherwise, he wouldn't do it in public. So he came out on the White House lawn somewhere and did exactly what he's accused of doing, but he did it in front of the national media. And so to sum this up, I want to tie it to a discussion that we've been having on the bonus show. I've mentioned it before that on the bonus show, we've been talking about the sad untimely death of satire in our modern context. It is impossible to satirize Trump or his administration or, or pretty much anyone who supports him because they are beyond the pale. They are beyond satire. And so we've been lamenting the fact that political comedy doesn't really work anymore. But I have good news. It turns out that there is a form of comedy which is thriving, unbeknownst to me, and most people, I think, it turns out that of all things, 
limericks are potentially making a comeback. So I, I've just discovered there, there are multiple accounts on Twitter whose whole purpose is to turn the day's news into vaguely progressive limericks. And so to, to wrap up uh, before vacation, I'll, I'll, I can I can leave you on a high note. This is from Liberal Limericks. That's at Liberics on Twitter. While all of the president's men must cover up crimes now and then, this duty seems futile when, frankly, this doodle commit them in public again. And that's the latest update on impeachment, and we'll do it for today. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. 